Hey, Hardy. Hey, Rebecca Hardy. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Are you excited about our guest today? I am. I'm always excited about history. You know that. You love history. I do. I This guy today, he was a speechwriter for Clinton. Yeah. That's crazy. How do you get in that role? How do you just like become a speechwriter for a president? Well, especially when we find out what he was doing right before that. You'll have to listen to find out. You're not going to believe but it. <laughs> he was doing something pretty extraordinary before he I'll came. I'll give you a hint. Spe- it involves platform shoes and powdered wigs. Yes. I that's mean, all we'll say. That's all we're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's a teaser. Right. He's had several books out. One of the books talks about um, like Lincoln's train ride when he was going to get inaugurated. That That's really cool. Like that, that's a little moment in history. I didn't know that much about, I'll be honest. And so I was excited to hear more about that. Well, and I really didn't know much about that either. The first time I'd really noticed it was in the Abraham Lincoln on the yeah. history channel that we watched. Yeah. And it was this, he was going, he had just, he had won the election and he's trying to get to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that happens in those 13 days of him getting to the yeah. White House. It's really so, cool. Really yeah. cool. So also he went to Harvard, like he's got several degrees from there. He's a very smart guy. <laughs> I really enjoy listening to him. I, the way I learn history is by listening and, and watching, I, you know, at the conversation, I can't just read a book like you can and pick it all up. So I love the conversations. It helps me really grasp it. Well, and that's what we talked about with Ted is like, and what we try to do with our This Month in History is mm-hmm. try to make history fun enough to get people like interested in it. Right. And I think just like Ted was talking about is having conversations about it is more memorable for a lot of people than right. sitting and reading a book. Right. So. If you can get me interested in it, you know, <laughs> I mean, Sharon says so has done a good job. Oh yeah. She's definitely. fantastic. So I've followed her and I've learned a lot. I've taken a few of her classes, which has helped me learn a lot about how things work. So and- would you call yourself, I mean, you have, you have changed over the years, Rebecca. Would you call yourself the history buff now? No. You're not quite there. Okay. Well, mainly I, when I think history buff, I think that you can answer a lot of questions about history. Okay. I think I'm, I just think of it as you're very interested in history. Oh, okay. Do you think you're very interested in history yet? Very is a strong word, (laughs) but I think I'm way more interested than I once was. And buff to me sounds like you're going to put me in a competition. I'm going to be quizzed on things and I'm not there yet. Not without you. Okay. (laughs) So that's, I think that's the difference. Okay. But today you're going to love this conversation with Ted. He is delightful. He's funny. He He has a really funny history and I learned a lot. So here you go. Ted Widmer.
Ted, welcome to Hardy Party of Five and a Half. We're so excited to have you here today. My husband's a huge history I am. I'm guy. a big history buff. So. He, I'm, I'm going to learn a lot and he's going <laughs> to love every minute of this. <laughs> so we appreciate you joining us today. My we pleasure. Kind of, we kind of wanted to start by, we, we, I first saw you on the, you know, Abraham Lincoln and on the history channel, the history channel. Yeah. And so, you know, Scott probably has heard your name before, but I want to know, like, how did you get into loving history? Like, did you have a certain teacher, professor who drew you into this circle? It, it's kind of almost a dysfunction. You know, I walk around in a historical cloud all day long, <laughs> wondering what was here a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. And I, I think part of it is I grew up in old places. I grew up in Boston and in Providence, Rhode Island. They're mm-hmm. both old. They're from about the same time. And there still are old houses around. And when I was in elementary school, we everyone in New England has to go to Plymouth Plantation or Sturbridge Village or a few other historical sites. And we go so much that you'd think it would almost snuff out a desire to, to learn about the past, but with me, it, it actually worked. I loving all of that, including the artifacts that, you know, those museums were filled with reenactors. I'm not sure we use that word then, but they'd hold up like an old broom or an old candle or something. And it just worked on me. I thought the things were really interesting. Um, and, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents, all, all of them liked history in one way or another. I mean, really all four grandparents, a couple of them were history teachers, but even the ones who weren't just like to tell stories about the past and both of my parents are academics and um, in, in their way, history people, not, not American history, but just, you know, always making comments about, about something that happened a long time ago. And I, because I grew up in Providence, I was near Brown University and the Rhode Island School of Design. And even as a kid, that was a great thing for someone who liked history. And I remember uh, getting to know the great historian Gordon Wood at a pretty young age, and he took a you know a bit of an interest in me and encouraged me. I didn't go to Brown, but I, he he taught me a fair amount about history when I was still a teenager. So I was just lucky. I was surrounded by these sort of um, mentor figures all around me, and it really paid off. Yeah, that's so cool. You you in Texas here we have you know the Alamo, and you have plenty of plenty of rock. So you know. Our right. kids go on on trips to you know the to Alamo, the Alamo to yeah. see the Alamo and stuff. That's so funny. I yeah, didn't think about that. So I mean, you're an expert in a lot of American history, but we wanted to kind of focus it in on one subject. So we picked. I'm a big fan of U.S. presidents. Like since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated about the leaders and mm-hmm. how they made it and where they came from. So um, we're going to kind of focus in on presidents. And the first question is. When the founding fathers came up with this idea, what were they thinking? <laughs> what was the idea behind the president and the new government? Well, great question. Um, and, and I'm not sure we're at the end of this thought because we're still having a lot of trouble with the presidency. Is, is it too powerful or not powerful? Yeah. Enough? Hmm. And that's what they were wondering about when they first set up a, a government. There was no president. I mean, there's 
there is a United States that's fighting the American Revolution with the Continental Congress calling the shots, and then um, the Articles of Confederation set up a government that uh, functions for for a while until George Washington is elected as the first president in 1789 and and serves two terms. And he was basically the perfect person to occupy that role. He was strong enough to command the loyalties of, of, you know, basically all Americans who regarded him as already as the father of the nation and the, the man whose generalship had, had won the, the American revolution. But he was also known to be a person with great self-restraint, sort of incredible self-restraint. That was his signature that he, he, he everyone knew he had it emotion and passion inside of him, but he governed himself so carefully that he just did everything properly. And so he seemed like the perfect guy to invest all of this power in, but they certainly debated it. They didn't want a king. They had just separated from a country with a king. Mm-hmm. They were very clear that it wasn't just George III himself. It was the office of king that they didn't want. They didn't want powerful families dominating the country and 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 passing on great privilege to their their children they wanted it to be a fairer country and constantly checks and balances so when there is a lot of power over here you need some more power on a different side of the government which became congress which has many checks on on the executive but Crucially, the, uh, the the two terms, which is not actually written into the Constitution, but because Washington stepped down after eight years, he, he created a, a really important precedent that was in place all the way up to Franklin Roosevelt, who then had four terms or, or he didn't make it through his fourth term. And, and after that, a constitutional amendment was passing we can only have two terms for a president. I, and I think that's very wise. I think we, we want that kind of restraint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I was, and I was thinking, yeah, Washington could have gone to a third term. I mean, it was, they would have been, everyone would have been okay with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's good. They, like you talked about the restraint he had to not only was president a good idea, but they, like you said, they had the right guy that could relinqu- relinquish power when he needed to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, as we, as it turned out, he, he, he lived such a short time after stepping down that it, he, yeah. he wouldn't have made it very far into, I guess he would have made it three years. So that, that, that is pretty far, but um, he was closer to the end of his life than, than anyone knew. Yeah. Um, so the first, the first seven founding or presidents were founding, they were either founding fathers or in Andrew Jackson, you had a war hero from 1812. So then you have Martin Van Buren, and I know you wrote a book about him. So what is it about him that kind of changes the way we look at the president? You know, that book was assigned to me. I, I didn't choose that topic, and yeah. I didn't really want that topic because he's so obscure. Yeah, but yeah. then I, I had a good time. They're all so interesting. Each each yeah. one of these people is so interesting. Um, and in his case, he really was different. He, I mean, one big difference is he grew up with Dutch as his first language. He, he was a 
um, well, not exactly an immigrant, but from a family that had been Dutch in New York for a long time. And, and he grew up pretty poor and he didn't go to college or fight in the military like Jackson, as you said. So he was a more ordinary kind of person than, than the first seven presidents. And I think that was important. And he also did a great deal to bring in the modern two-party system. I'm not sure the founders wanted that to happen. George Washington was upset when it started to happen when he was president. But once it was inevitably going to happen, Van Buren made it a pretty good system. And he showed how to do it, how parties could coordinate across states and, and regions and and support newspapers to, to get their positions out. And he, he really modernized uh, American politics. He probably wasn't a great president, but he was a very interesting sort of typical person of that time. And, and well, really unusual in, in, in his uh, ability to forecast the way big parties would come to dominate politics. Okay. And you'd speak of like, he was, like not extraordinary at all. And I think of those presidents from like 1840s and 1850s. And it seems like a lot of generic guys, like in my mind, all I can think of is Van Buren's. He had the big sideburns and that's right. how I remember him. And then right. you a bunch of guys that were like, I just don't remember much about them, but then you have Lincoln show up. Why, why is Lincoln the right person at the right time after what seems like, you know, kind of a boring set of presidents. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Scott. It's a, it's a rough time in the 1850s for a lot of reasons. Um, everyone can tell the slavery issue is is not only not going away, it's, it's getting worse from year to year. And part of that is related to the Mexican War. Wars never quite end the way people think they're going to. And even though the U.S. won a huge victory and got a lot of territory, um, it also opened up a Pandora's box because the North and the South could not agree about what this new territory should be. Should it be, uh, should it allow slavery to expand, which the South was starting to say in, in an earlier generation, they had said it would never expand there, but now suddenly they're changing their tune. And the North is beginning to get angrier saying, you keep violating your promises and taking more land and creating more slavery states. And that was related to the problem of the bad presidents because there were just one after another, these Northern presidents who gave up all of their principles in order to get Southern political support to become president. But then the North didn't really admire them anymore either. So they were fatally flawed individuals. Franklin Pierce, one, and James Buchanan is another. So everyone is really ready for an ethical person to come in and be president. And it turns out to be Abraham Lincoln. And he's a huge surprise when he gets the nomination. He has about as little experience as anyone who ever was elected to the office. Uh, I mean, it's amazing he becomes our greatest president because his experience is so small. Yeah. He's, he's been a one-term congressman 12 years earlier, and, and then he just retired from politics and became 
a lawyer, but he starts giving speeches about the spread of slavery into the territories and they do pretty well. Still, it's, it's still a huge surprise when he gets the nomination, but he's, it's a time when people are so fed up with politics, they don't want a known commodity. They want a, a new person, a fresh face. And there is a feeling that the Midwest is really important to America. That's growing fast and it's not quite as tainted by either the North or the South by, by the bad politics of the earlier uh, g- generations. And, and so he's just the right kind of person, clearly an honest, I mean, famously honest Abe and from an important state, Illinois, and his lack of experience also meant he didn't have very much baggage, which was really a good thing in 1860. And then the way it happened, the Democratic Party, which usually won, it split in half also over slavery. So even before the presidential election happened, the biggest party split in half, which meant Lincoln was in a much stronger position. Uh, He ran against three other people but he got the most votes. He, he was well short of 50%. In fact, he was short of 40% of the popular vote, but it was enough to, to win the election. And we, we think nowadays that our elections are so rough and hard, but weren't they worse back then? Like, wasn't it more personal and nasty back then? It's pretty bad. I mean, yeah. he had the advantage of being able to just stay at home. He, yeah. he didn't go out and campaign. Uh, although it's not quite true that nobody did his one of his rivals was Stephen Douglas, the same guy he had been debating against in Illinois. He's also a rival for the presidency that year. Douglas actually goes out and campaigns for the first time in, in American history. But um, yes, there was a lot of mudslinging. And because people were so emotional about slavery, there were a lot of false things said about Lincoln that he was partly black or that he was uh, illegitimate, which was actually not very far from the truth um, or that he was, you know, insults that he looked like an animal, like a gorilla that happened all, all the time or yeah. very uncouth, bad manners um, in the newspapers and the cartoons of, of that era. Oh, yeah. They just didn't have social media. <laughs> yeah. The, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully they didn't have social media. Yeah. Okay. In your book, um, Lincoln on the verge, 13 days to Washington, you talk about this um, train ride that Lincoln took to his inauguration. That was fascinating to me in, in the, on the history channel when I was watching about that. So tell us why that was such an impactful moment. Well, thank you. And I just appreciate you guys being interested in all of my books because some of the earlier ones are mighty obscure and I appreciate <laughs> found them. Um, but this one was really um, the most fun to write of any of them so far. Uh, I, I mean, I have to begin by saying I grew up liking trains. Uh, you have them in Texas and we have them in the Northeast. And I used to just enjoy riding them and and even going with my dad to look at them. We'd go park somewhere and watch the train go by. And it was kind of an old fashioned, but fun thing to do. Did you count cars? um, Yes. (laughs) Although we we don't have the kind of freight, long freight trains that you do. We, we do have freight trains, but they're not those 200 car trains (laughs) up here. Um, But uh, then I got involved with, 
a newspaper series about the Civil War, 2010, 2011, and we were trying to figure out what happened 150 years ago. So in early 2011, I was sort of looking for things to write about in early 1861. And Lincoln is really interesting. He's won the election, but he's still living in Springfield, Illinois, pretty small town, and trying to figure out how to even get to Washington. As as I looked more carefully at that problem, I realized it was a really interesting question. To, To get to Washington was hard for many reasons. He had to figure out a train route that would take him through states that were still in the United States and to not go through states that had seceded by the time he's trying to get to Washington. But also there was incredible danger on the train. He was, um, I mean, everyone knew he would be speaking in public throughout the train ride. And there were a lot of people who were determined to stop Abraham Lincoln from ever making it to Washington. Some of these people were acting on their own. Some were a little more organized pro-Southern clubs that um, wanted the, the distinction of saying to their friends that they stopped what they considered this terrible threat to their future from ever making it to Washington. And it, you know, I'd heard a few stories in my years of studying history that there was a, you know, a little assassination attempt, but I didn't realize the extent of it or the closeness of, of how, how narrow his escape was or the, the heroism of the people who helped him, including two women. Two women really got in there and saved Lincoln's life. And without Lincoln, I don't think the Civil War turns out the way, the, you know, the positive way it, it did. So two women may have saved our country. And I, I just found the whole story fascinating. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> um, it's just, it's crazy to think that if that would have happened, what, like you say, what the country would have been to not have that later that he was. It's just, it's hard to believe that mm-hmm. it's hard to even imagine. So that's yeah. crazy. Um, so let's fast forward hundred years and we have John F. Kennedy. And I know you did a book called listening in where you were able to access some of the like secret tapes of the white house. And it's just talk us through that process. And what did you learn about just being president, just hearing these private conversations that no one had heard before? That was a really fun project. That project actually came to me rather than the other way around. Um, I knew some people who worked at the John F. Kennedy Library, and I I, I slightly knew Caroline Kennedy, who uh, wrote the introduction to that book, and I was grateful to her for finding me. And it was just so interesting. I mean, I I came out of an old-fashioned world of reading books and looking at paper documents. And suddenly I was surrounded by sound. And we all know now, including your podcast, that history can be made a lot more exciting and fun with people talking to each other. It's the way human beings interact. And that was kind of a, a first for me to realize how exciting sound was. So not just what's written down. And I got access to these recordings that he was making himself. Um, we, Everybody knows Richard Nixon made tape recordings, but actually he was copying Lyndon Johnson, who was copying John F. Kennedy. And 
He never explained why he was making these recordings, but I think it was because he got bad military advice early in his presidency to invade Cuba in the Bay of Pigs in 1961. And I think he wanted a record of when he was getting bad advice. He wanted to be able to show people later what what he, he was being told. I mean, who knows? Um, but it's an incredibly interesting window into his thinking. He didn't start it until uh, summer of 1962. But as a result, we have all of the meetings around the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, you know, the, the most tense moment of the Cold War. And then in 1963, uh, an incredible record of all of these things that were happening at the same time. And so, so to answer your question, what is what were my insights into the presidency is you cannot believe how many things are happening at, simultaneously. And yeah. you maybe can think you're in control. You're the most powerful person on earth in, in a sense, but events are even more in control than, than you are. It, it, feel, it felt like to me. And so in the summer of 63, he's got, a civil rights movement that is almost out of control, that uh, there is very serious resistance in the South, um, specifically to the integration of the University of Alabama. Um, Mississippi has already happened, but they're trying to get African-American students into Alabama. George Wallace is, is the governor and he's saying no. And Kennedy uh, has been careful on this issue. He doesn't want to alienate his supporters in the South. He didn't win by very much in 1960. But finally, there's no avoiding taking a stand. And he takes a stand in favor of the movement and gives a, a beautiful speech about civil rights. Um, at the same time, he's trying really hard to rein in the Cold War and to work out an agreement with Nikita Khrushchev of Russia to limit nuclear weapons testing and, and, and just nuclear weapons generally. And he's also, there are meetings throughout the summer of 63 about a kind of deteriorating situation in Vietnam. So that's suddenly, that's been a little place, a little country that's sort of a pretty far down the list of problems, but it's starting to come up really fast. And he's trying to figure out with all of these problems how do I get reelected? Um, I can't be too liberal. I've been pretty liberal on civil rights, so I've got to be a little less liberal on Vietnam and 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 show some military strength there in order to be reelected, or they're just going to cream me as a soft Democrat liberal um, in a country that was not really that liberal. So I felt like. It was just, you know, in one day, even I remember there were meetings on civil rights, Vietnam, and nuclear disarmament with the Soviet oh, Union. Just incredible. That's, that's, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my word. We don't realize how complicated that is for a president. And you really never have a day off. Like they talk about presidents taking vacations and all that. I'm like, you're 24 7. If anything happens, they come to you. Mm-hmm. So. And- and Congress is not really your friend half the time, as we yeah. see now most of the time. And, and everybody wants your job, even people 
who seem like your allies, they want yeah. your job too. So it's just, it's, it never ends. Oh, <laughs> now we do know that you were in the white house because you were a speechwriter for Clinton from, was it 97 to 2001? Exactly. Yeah. And, and you were the like specializing in foreign policy, correct? Yeah. So yeah. I, I I, that was most of what I did. At the end, I, I did a slightly different job, but most of the time I was a, a speechwriter of foreign policy. There were two different speechwriting teams in, in that particular time. I think since then, they've been consolidated in, into one office, but yeah. I worked in an office uh, inside the National Security Council, and it was a uh, pretty steep learning curve. I had not worked in government and I had not worked in foreign policy. In fact, I worked on things like Martin Van Buren, which is of precious little relevance <laughs> to U.S. foreign policy. In <laughs> but I had very uh, compassionate colleagues who, and very, very competent colleagues who taught me to, to do better. I mean, they would criticize my early drafts and help me get them uh, better. And we had a good system of every, you know, teamwork basically, and everyone helping everyone out. And um, it was just an incredibly exciting time. It was uh, a time of, well, a fair amount of domestic turbulence, but I, I was not really near that. I was helping Bill Clinton with things like uh, the Good Friday Accord in Northern Ireland and peace efforts in the Middle East that didn't go all the way toward peace, but made some progress nevertheless, and big presidential trips to China and Africa and Russia and many to Europe and a couple to South Asia. And it was just very exciting time. It was a pretty good time for U.S. foreign policy. The Cold War had ended or so we thought, and democracy was spreading around the world and the economy was booming. So we had a pretty good message and it was just really fun. I, I loved the people I worked with and I just learned so, so much. It was just really exciting. So how does that process work with like a, you, you get an assignment to do the speech. There's a team working on it, I assume. And then how does that get to the president? What, how does that all, how do you come to the final version of the speech like that? So we were, in an office called strategic planning that was an office inside the national security council and uh, the national security council at that time probably had maybe a hundred people overall so you know we got to know each other and respect each other and the head of it was the national security advisor who at that time was sandy berger and he was a close advisor to Bill Clinton. They'd known each other for decades. And so he was a trusted aide and very well informed on foreign policy and, and close to the Secretary of State, who was Madeleine Albright. So it helped that they were all such good friends with each other. And inside of that, you know, at, the, at a high level, Sandy Berger would come back to our office and say, these are the speeches coming up. And the boss of our office would then assign speeches to each person in the office. And the boss of our office was Tony Blinken, who's now the secretary of, of state. And he was a very conscientious boss. And so he would listen to us and we would, we we're almost like 
bear cubs waiting to be fed. We'd sort of <laughs> express a desire for a certain speech and he would listen and, and usually he would uh, say yes. But in any case, what, whatever we did would be looked at by the entire team and we'd circulate a draft by email and then Tony would always improve it. And then it would go up to Sandy Berger who would improve it some more. And then when everybody had signed off, it would go up to Bill Clinton, usually the night before a speech. So it was very careful process. And also many people in other parts of the government want to see what a president is about to announce. They, they, there may be policy implications or um, domestic politics is concerned always. And the Pentagon is concerned always in the state department. So those people would have a chance to see it uh, like a day or so before the speech was given. Okay. So did the, 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 this is totally off top, not really off topic, but did the president ever get a speech and then send it back down and say, no. Um, You know, that's a really good question, Rebecca. I, I think the answer is yes. It didn't happen too many times, but there, there were a couple of times we, we just were off. We had the wrong tone. Maybe, maybe we were, way too positive about something that was not yet a done deal mm-hmm. or, or the opposite, maybe still like sort of negative, remembering some older history about something that President Clinton really wanted to celebrate. Like this is actually going very well, but what would most often happen, it usually would not go back to total rewrite of a speech, but I I should mention that Bill Clinton himself was a very talented writer and speaker of his own speeches. And what would usually happen is it was good enough and he would then make notes to himself, often writing in the margins, just in his own handwriting. Yeah, That was all he needed because he was so comfortable up there. I mean, he was a very good speaker and he would just write a few words and that was enough for him to go off. And in in the middle of the speech, this was always sort of a moment of both frustration and pride that like you'd see him sort of put down the paper and just look out and you knew, okay, he's just going to do his own thing. Now he's for he's ripping now, yeah. <laughs> that means my draft wasn't good enough. <laughs> Pressing part, but then he would really sort of uh, fly in those moments and, and soar and it was better. You know, a politician saying what's in his mind and in his heart is better than someone reading off the printed page. Mm. And he was very talented at that. He could do either thing. He was a good reader when needed, but he could also just look up. I mean, there's a famous story that once the teleprompter, which he, by the way, did not use very often. It was about once a year, like the state of the union, every other one, no teleprompter, which is not at all true today. I think now it's like every single speech is teleprompter. Yeah. But there was a famous story that a State of the Union happened and the teleprompter broke, which you don't want to have happen. You don't want <laughs> the, the, the words just stop. And he was able to just wing it for many minutes, you know, for like five or six minutes until they got it working again. And yeah. which I don't think... It, successors uh, could, could have done. I, I think he, he had a, a lot of the knowledge was in his head and he, he knew what he wanted to say. 
That's so cool. Well, and I feel for I work in AV and I can just feel I can just know how freaked out that crew was (laughs) teleprompter working. But it's good that they had a speaker like him that's just has no problem going on. Right. You probably don't deal with that kind of talent. Um, not to that level, probably. (laughs) So as someone who's worked in the White House, you know, TV junkies, we have the West Wing and Madam Secretary and Designated Survivor. Are these accurate? Do you do you watch any of these? And you're like, okay, that's totally inaccurate. I'm actually sort of um, underinformed about TV. I'm like a, a weird, uh, freakish <laughs> anachronism. Like I still, you can see, I got a few books behind me. And, uh, <laughs> well, you're in that his- history fog. You said yeah. that you're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, my history fog doesn't include too much TV. I mean, a little bit. I remember I did watch the West Wing, which actually came out when when I still was a speechwriter, and it was really fun. And I thought it got a lot of things correct, including how many things are happening in a given day and how smart everyone seems all around you, mm-hmm. um, and how many issues are kind of gray. Like I was trying to say about John F. Kennedy, if he goes too liberal on civil rights, he's got to compensate and do something more conservative, which I, yeah. I, I actually, this is a private thought as a historian that I think that's what Vietnam was starting to represent to him, that it was a chance to sort of shore up his conservative credentials when he, he needed both. But um, the show I often showed in a given day, a really tough decision for president Bartlett. And if he does the right thing over here, it's going to cost him some political support over, over here. Um, what was not accurate was it always seemed like such a small staff. It seemed like five people, which is good for a TV show, but in reality, it's many people, uh, you know, it's hundreds of people making it even more crazy. Um, so there was one speechwriter in that show and there were about 10 in, in reality working for Bill Clinton. So it was on a different scale, but, but yeah. you know, it, it did get a lot right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Now speaking of Hollywood <laughs> in our research, we found out something. <laughs> we found out you were in a little band and you, you were Lord Rockingham in the band, the upper crust. So you, this is the mid to late 90s. So you got to tell us what that's all about. You are very good at research. Um, <laughs> there's even a, on YouTube, there's an hour and a half documentary about y'all. Yes. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I was there when it was a friend, a friend of mine actually made it. Yeah. And it was, it began as a fun, creative project with friends designed really to be funny. I had a lot of friends who were either comedians or um, actors. And I was in a a city that is full of 
funny people, Boston. And the, the idea just grew. I, I was in a couple bands before that one. And some of them were a little bit costumey. We would put on costumes for comedic uh, effect. And then in about 1993 or four, this new one happened with some new friends. And we thought it would be funny to dress up like 18th century <laughs> English aristocrats with powdered wigs and yeah. um, puffy shirts and big platform shoes, which is is not a bad look on a rock stage. <laughs> platform shoes. Just did it. And with yeah. wig even, even more height. <laughs> it wasn't that far from either Spinal Tap, which we yeah. had seen we loved, or normal, I mean, successful bands like Kiss, who I, you know, we all had been teenagers in the 70s and we liked Kiss and ACDC. Um, you know, fist in the air, kind of hard thumping rock and roll. <laughs> all the songs were about the problems of being very wealthy in 18th century England. And it was all just like a comedy sketch. Yeah. But then it, it took off a little more than we expected. And in fact, we came to Texas once and we played South by Southwest in oh, Austin. Yeah. It's a big which deal. Was, which was a big deal. It was it was a lot of fun. And things were getting so crazy for me at that time that I, I actually wondered if music might be my future. And yeah. it wasn't. But it was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed my creative friendships. You know, these guys were really good musicians, much better than I am, actually. And one guy in particular was an incredible songwriter. He was the lead singer. And I just went along for the ride, and it was, a, it was quite a ride. I mean, it was very, very different. But not that much time elapsed between the end of that phase and the extremely different phase of starting White House speechwriting. So I was glad it ended when it when it did. <laughs> well, that's quite a segue from hard rock band to <laughs> writing speech yeah. for the president. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't that's even know awesome. how one gets from one to the other. <laughs> but does your it's kind of like a lot of life just happens. You, yeah. You know? In the right place at the right time, I right. guess. Right. So does your history fog allow you to listen to music today or do you, do you? Oh yeah. So that's what I do a lot of when I'm not watching TV and um, <laughs> I, my Beatles thing has, uh, I mean, everyone loves the Beatles, but I'm, I'm in a very deep Beatles thing at, at the moment. And I mean, I'm a lifelong Beatles fan, but it's gotten deeper in, in COVID. Um, actually I started a, a zoom call once a week with friends, kind of like the call we're in right now. And it started about history. And then we just all admitted one day, we'd rather talk about the Beatles than, than history. We sort of ran out of steam. And yeah. There is no limit to what this group of friends can say about the, uh, it. Even though it's old information, it, it is history, yeah. but it's just so endlessly interesting and when new things happen like the peter jackson documentary last fall that gives us like another year of, of stuff to to talk about so i'm in a pretty deep beatles thing i actually just wrote my first music criticism ever that appeared about three weeks ago in the online new yorker uh it wasn't in the magazine but it was about a member of the beatles named Stuart sutcliffe who was there at the beginning and then he he left the Beatles to become a painter 
And then he he died not long after that. And I just thought his story was fascinating. So I I did something that combined fandom, which I am, with some historian skills. Like I read a lot of books and a little bit of um, what you're doing and what I'm trying to do more, just talking to people, sort of talking to people. You get a different kind of information, often better information from a good conversation than from reading a book, what gets into a book is often sort of um, filtered, you know, and when you're talking, it can be more unfiltered and, and more interesting. So, um, so I love the Beatles. I love soul music. I love sixties soul music and R and B. Um, I'm not above listening to ACDC. I still like that kind of. <laughs> I was going to ask you about hard rock. If you were still into hard rock a little bit. I know I don't put it on that much, but sometimes it comes on the car radio and, and I might tap my foot, <laughs> hopefully not on the accelerator, but yeah, I you might. don't go faster as the song goes faster. Yeah. 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 Um, I still listen to the radio actually still too. (laughs) That's so fantastic. I love what you said too, about the, the face-to-face connecting and talking. I mean, I I will, I am not a history. He can read a a history textbook and cover to cover in minutes and just soak it all in. I will not forget our conversation, Ted, you have taught me today and this is what I will remember. (laughs) I'm really grateful that you found me. It's nice to, have I mean you guys read all my stuff and I yeah. appreciate that. Listen, uh, in the future, if you need anybody on your research team, you oh, know, yeah, okay. you know yeah. who to find because he he can figure it out. <laughs> you know, in, in the last, so my Lincoln book came out right at the beginning of the pandemic, which was bad in many ways. Meant people weren't going to bookstores, but mm-hmm. I started doing Zoom talks, mm-hmm. and it's been so fun, and I love getting outside of the world I was in was sort of history departments in universities and they're, they're fine. I mean, good, good colleagues who work hard, but it is so much more fun to break out of that world and just talk to everybody out there. And so I've had so many good zoom talks, including this one today. We just thank you so much. You're charming and relatable. And I've learned a lot from you today. And I know you've got to get somewhere for work, but we appreciate you so much taking time today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for your good questions. And uh, I hope hope we can do it again someday. That'd be great. That'd be great. great. Take care, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Bye, Rebecca. (laughs) Rebecca, I can feel for Ted. I know you can. Because when I go to, a, like, I travel a lot for work. So I was recently in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I do, I get in that historical fog. And I try to imagine what everything was like when these historical moments were happening. Yeah. Do you do that? No, I'm in a different fog because I'm premenopausal. So this is a premenopausal <laughs> fog that causes yeah. me in new cities to want to know where the closest bathroom is. Okay. That's that's where I go. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. immediately. I don't look around and think, I wonder where people stood when they were doing whatever it is they did here. Well, no. and you're always more practical than I am. That is true. Well, see, we make a good couple because I'm imagining what the history was like, and you're finding the bathroom that we're both going to need. <laughs> you're going to need, you're going to need my practicalness. <laughs> That's right. Somewhere in the next hour. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, that was fun. I always love talking history, of course. I know and you do. Ted was, he was a fun guy. Yes, and you yeah. know what? I might have you a job. I mean, what if is you, that? Well, if he needs some kind of historical oh, yeah. research. Okay, I think he probably has some other people maybe, involved there. Maybe I don't know. But you do. So maybe I'm on the you, list somewhere. Yeah, maybe you're. Yeah. Maybe you're down there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No, that was awesome. And you know what? 
I think it's time to relax. Yep. I think I'm going to throw on some upper crust. Yeah. How do you do that? I don't even know how to do that. Well, this is I love you. This is I love you. This This is is the one I do. Okay. I'm a lover, not a rocker. Well, then you can't be in this picture. (laughs) Okay. But then you do this. Yes. Yes. Okay. You're not good. You're not. You're not good at this. No, I'm not. (laughs) You listen to Phil Collins. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm going to listen to some upper crust now and just imagine how the yeah. Imagine the 18th century playing out in front of me. You do that. I'm going to go find a bathroom. (laughs) Party, party, five and a half, over and out. We'll see you next time. You say there's people starving. I'm dropping down dead in the street. The lazy slimes, they ain't got a chopper, said they ain't got enough to eat. Well, that's them.